Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 403 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. I have been waiting for this episode for a long time, and it's a thrill to bring you Cal Newport. If you don't know who he is, uh, you're about to find out, and I think you'll love it as much as I do. We are going to talk about his new book and why you're distracted and unproductive at work, how to structure your work life far more effectively, and how to cultivate influence without using social media fascinating. Today's episode is brought to you by Glue Connect. You can go to glueconnect.church forward slash carry to grow your digital outreach campaigns and get access to my free four-part course, Click to Connect. And by Belay, you can text carry C-A-R-E-Y, to 31996 to get your free download of Belay's delegation worksheet today. Well, I am super pumped to have Cal on this podcast. I started accessing his work maybe five years ago, around the time that Deep Work came out, read Digital Minimalism. Uh, He's published several books that have been published in over 30 languages. And he is Associate Professor of Computer Sciences at Georgetown University, where he specializes in the theory of distributed systems. But he's also a New York Times bestselling author who writes for a broader audience. So think about this. How do you become a New York Times bestselling author without having social media? I ask him that question. It's worth listening through for that because so many of us are like, you know, if I could just get more followers on social, I'd be more successful. Well, he's got a different take on that. And it's really, really fascinating. He's a regular contributor to The New Yorker, The New York Times, Wired Magazine, a frequent guest on NPR. His blog, Study Hacks, which has been published since 2007, attracts over 3 million visits a year. He's got a fantastic new podcast, too, Deep Questions with Cal Newport. I discovered it doing research for my interview and have become a subscriber. Speaking of which, if you haven't subscribed to this podcast, please do. We love to bring you some great leaders every chance we get. We do this about six times a month on this show, and uh, we try to deliver the kind of conversations you would want to have if you were sitting down with Cal Newport. So I think this is really important because, you know, we thought technology was going to make our work easier. Arguably, it's made it more complicated. A lot of people are working from home for the first time or remotely. It's exhausting. Cal talks about that. And we go all over the place in this interview, but hopefully you're going to walk away with some very practical tips on how to live in a world without email to manage your productivity. And uh, yeah, we have some fun with that. I've also got some uh, productivity tips for you, some ones that are close to me at the end of the show. And then I've got a book coming out this fall too, which is in this field on productivity. And I don't think you can get enough of it. We are all struggling to try to keep up. So hope you find this episode interesting. Um, Today's episode is brought to you by our partners at Glue Connect. If you're like a lot of church leaders, your outreach strategy looks nothing like it did a year ago. And you're probably thinking, how do I get online? Well, if digital is your number one outreach channel, how do you get the right message to the right people? So Glue Connect was created for just this need. It's the world's first collective outreach platform for churches. It's affordable, requires zero additional staff, and in 2021, your costs are covered by kingdom-minded donors, investors, who want you to have access to this one-of-a-kind solution. Here's how it works. So they run professional felt-need-based ads off Facebook, Instagram, other digital channels. 
They pool funds from donors and churches to run cooperative campaigns in your city, offsetting the costs. In Kansas City, churches saw a 21% increase in new people connecting with their churches for the first time. And as Easter is rolling out, this should be your outreach toolkit. Ultimately, it translates into more people checking out what your church has to offer. And in select cities, you can now get Glue Connect for free for the first year, which is a $1,700 value. So if you want to see if you qualify, if your city's being covered, head over to glueconnect.church forward slash carry, C-A-R-E-Y, and Glue is spelled G-L-O-O, glueconnect.church forward slash carry, to learn more. As a bonus, when you sign up for Glue Connect, you'll get free access to Click to Connect, my new four-part video course for church leaders. That's a $250 value. And today's episode is also brought to you by our friends over at Belay. So I have used their services many times as a people like Damon Johns and so many others. So let's talk about time and how 24 hours never seems to be enough. As a leader, you want to grow, but you can't do everything on your own. And a lot of us struggle with delegation. The powerful multiplying effects of delegation are mission critical because when you entrust others To do that for which they were hired, you not only free yourself from a busyness mountain, but you in turn develop the kind of employees that allow your business to grow. That's why Belay, an incredible organization revolutionizing productivity with their own virtual assistants, bookkeepers, and social media strategists, help growing organizations, and they are offering a free download of their delegation worksheet today. So to get it, you can text CAREY, C-A-R-E-Y, to 31996 and get your free download of their delegation worksheet today. You can get one step closer to reclaiming precious time every week to do only what you can do. So I just want to say, if you listen to this whole podcast, yeah, uh, maybe at 1.5 speed, you're probably going to reclaim all of that time and productivity alone from Cal, from what I share at the end, and from uh, Belay and maybe even Glue Connect. So all this plays together. In the meantime, let's jump into my conversation with someone I really, really appreciate, Cal Newport. Cal, so excited to have you on. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me on. I'm excited as well. So uh, I love your work. It's had a really positive impact on me, um, partly coming out of a burnout episode I had 15 years ago, and I had to rediscover how to work and find a sustainable pace. Um, Where I'd love to start is something I found really interesting in deep work, which is the whole distinction between shallow work and deep work. Can you can you kind of explain that? Because that, it just it resonated so deeply for me when I first heard you. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a simple concept, but sometimes just putting vocabulary, the simple concepts makes all the difference. Right. Uh, so that distinction, which was at the core of that book, is we can think about our efforts when we're doing knowledge work into two different categories. There's deep work, which is where you are giving something your full unbroken attention. So it's a cognitively demanding task that you're giving your full attention and trying to do as well as you can. And then there's everything else, which I call shallow work. Uh, And I don't mean shallow to be pejorative. It's just tasks that do not require your full unbroken skilled attention. So like answering emails or preparing slides for a talk or something like this. And the main argument is that deep work is what really moves the needle Whereas shallow work is important and it's what keeps the lights off, but deep work is what really produces the new value, the stuff that drives most organizations or most teams or most personal growth. So you want to make sure that both are getting attention. And we're in a time now where accidentally we are really condensing or compressing the time available for deep work. And I think that's to our detriment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can you give us some examples of uh, like you have a lot of content creators here. So you have preachers, a lot of entrepreneurs, CEOs, management people, knowledge workers, which is really your your field as well as an academic. 
Um, but they're, they're working in a white collar setting. They're working in a knowledge worker setting. So what would be an example? You gave a couple of shallow work, but like, what would some deep work be? Because I agree. We, we talk on our team all the time in my communication company about, you know, working on it versus working in it. Like, okay, you're actually creating stuff of value rather than just replying, but just so people have those categories clear in their head. Sure. Well, I mean, one of the groups I hear from a lot is preachers. Hmm. And what preachers tell me, for example, is sermon writing is deep work, right? And and of course, in the religious context, we're we're used to this notion of the contemplative life. And only in that period of silence and contemplation can you hope to have any sort of uh, uh, interaction with the divine. So the preachers will say, okay, sermon writing is canonical deep, and I'm not giving it the time it needs because I have emails from parishioners. I have budget spreadsheets. I have all of the logistical overhead of having a building at a physical plant and at a budget at payroll or something like this. So this was a classic example of that shallow work is important, but you need to answer emails. You need to be uh, communicative to, to your parishioners. But at the same time, your sermons require unbroken concentration mm-hmm. and it's two different types of activities. So that, that was like, that was a classic example that came up a lot actually. Yeah. Yeah. And having uh, preached for uh, 25, 30 years, I can tell you that's a lot of deep work. Um, what would, for an average office worker, let's say you're a receptionist. I mean, does a receptionist have deep work, an assistant person? What about a middle manager? What would be an example of some deep work for someone in that situation? Well, so I get into this, that exact question with those exact examples, actually, uh, in, in the new book. Yeah. So I talk about, I say, okay, let's be more nuanced about this. And let's talk about uh, three different categories of workers. And, and I believe I use the term uh, makers, so people who are primarily tasked with creating valuable output with their brain, so you know, like a computer programmer producing computer code or a writer producing books or a preacher producing sermons. Uh, managers, so you're primarily managing teams that, among other things, people in your team produce value. And then just to be needlessly alliterative, I called uh, support staff minders. Mm-hmm. So you're you're mainly supporting uh, you're supporting other people with administrative or, or support. And I said, okay, what is the, the ideal way to work in each of these situations? That is, what's the ideal way to take advantage of the way the human brain actually functions in each of these positions. And the, the thread that connected them all was, I would call single focus sequentiality, doing one thing at a time, giving it the attention it deserves until you're done with it and ready to move on to the next thing. That's actually the through line that's going to best take advantage of how the brain works and gets the best results. So the the converse to this is if you're doing many things at the same time, that while you're working, let's say, as an as administrative assistant, you're like, well, I'm, I'm trying to solve this problem, but I'm also having to check email and I'm on Slack and I'm continually moving back and forth, like kind of working on this, kind of working on that. Uh, you know, for a manager, you're 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 overwhelmed with communication and, and trying to I'm kind of talk to this person, sitting this email, going back to my inbox or as a maker, you're trying to write the server to write the computer code, but you keep interrupting yourself. In all of those cases, from a brain perspective, the ideal way to execute is actually, no, I'm just doing this one thing until I'm done that I can clear that context and say, what's next? So I think, I think that is a, a general umbrella that includes really long periods of deep work if you're someone who's producing something very cognitively demanding. It includes that, but also includes these other types of activities as well. As anyone who's read Digital Minimalism, which was a great book, came out a couple of years ago, would know, um, you know, you talk about the importance of undistracted work. So I want to I double click on that for a moment. But I, I heard you say on your podcast, which I would highly recommend on, I discovered it in researching this. And 
I'm a few episodes in and I'm like, man, this is so practical. Like if people are just looking for hacks, it's so not hacks because this your work is not about hacks. But you know what I mean? Like practical tips. How do you make this work on a Tuesday? But you said a lot of people use, I think it's called the Pomodoro technique, but basically your minimum allotment of time for undistracted work. Is it, is it 30 minutes? Is that what you're saying? Like sometimes we have trouble staying focused for five minutes. And I think in your new book, you say like people are checking email like 126, 126 emails a day and they're checking every few minutes and, and that kind of thing. So what is like a minimum block of like undistracted time that you think is, is helpful? Yeah, it's a good question. So if we're talking about administrative task, if you're blocking off your day, which is what I recommend doing, I, mm. I, I, I talk about this a lot on my podcast, this notion of time blocking. I, I think yeah. you should actually give every minute of your day a job as opposed to just having a list and an inbox and a meeting schedule and just sort of trying to get through things. Right. So if you're going to block off your time, I think 30 minutes is the smallest block uh, that is useful. Because once you get below 30 minutes, you're getting too precise. And it's going to be too hard to try to hit that. You don't quite know how long things are going to take. So for administrative tasks, the very minimum I would put aside 30 minutes at a time. So if you're going to check your email, have at least 30 minutes for it. Uh, for a cognitively demanding task, I would say at least an hour. And the reason why I say at least an hour is that there is a context switching cost. So when I switch from doing this over to this demanding task, there's going to be a 10 to 15 minute period while my brain is changing what it's amplifying, what it's suppressing, and the attention networks are readjusting for this new thing I'm working on. Until that's done, I'm not at full capacity. Hmm. And so if you're only working for 30 minutes on a cognitively demanding task, well, only maybe 15 minutes of that are you at full capacity. So I tend to say if it's going to be really hard on your brain, you need at least an hour. So that within that hour, you can get at least 45 minutes of rock and rolling at full speed. Otherwise, it's not worth all the overhead of switching your attention. Yeah, I remember reading an article uh, years ago in the New York Times. You can still find it. And you, you, you hinted this in some of your books as well. But like there is a cost to context switching or to task switching. And I remember the New York Times said, any distraction. So I check my phone, right? I'm in the middle of, of writing an article or writing a talk that I want to deliver at a conference. I check my phone. I look at the notification. It says it's about like there's, I think the article said there's a 25 minute reset before your brain is sort of back where it was before. What's your take on that? What, what are your thoughts on that, Cal? Yeah. Well, I mean, hey, and it's possible that I wrote that article. <laughs> you may have. That may have been you. I have. I, I have written about this for the Times before. Uh, to me, the context switching cost is the whole ballgame. It's the biggest misunderstood thing about knowledge work, and it's the mm. foundation on a lot of my advice and one of the biggest issues I think we face in office work. Now, the issue is we we mistake that with multitasking. So there was this period in the 90s where people mm. were very proud about uh, literally doing multiple things at the same time. So I'm on the phone while I'm writing, uh, I'm answering emails while I'm at a meeting. And uh, we figured out around the early 2000s, the research was pretty clear, this doesn't work. You can't actually write while you're listening. Your brain has to try to switch between the two and it doesn't work very well. So as we proceeded through the 2000s, we all got very proud and said, look, we don't multitask anymore. We do one thing at a time. We don't have notifications on. Uh, we don't keep our email inbox open next to Microsoft Word while we're writing. So we think we had solved the problem. But what we weren't counting on was the context switching cost of doing quick checks. Mm. So you say, I'm single tasking because I do not have my email inbox open. Oh, well, I'm going to quickly check it, you know, just every six minutes or so, but I'm not keeping it open. I'm only checking it for a minute just because I'm looking for an important email. Then I go back to what I'm doing. You think you're still single tasking, but what you don't realize is that 30 second glance at your inbox 
has just wrecked your ability to think for the next 15, 20, maybe 25 minutes because you have exposed your mind to this other, these other obligations, these open loops, messages that you know you need to answer but you can't answer right away and that's lingering there and you have just jumbled all of these attention circuits. It's not the, the time that you spend on the distraction that matters. It's the context shift, the cost of the switch and the switch back. And so if you look at the statistics that say, yeah, the average knowledge worker is checking an inbox once every six minutes. And we know it takes 10, 15, 20 minutes to get your attention back. That means the average knowledge worker is basically in a persistent state of reduced cognitive capacity. We are, by accident, making ourselves non-trivially dumber. And I think this is a, a huge scandalous reality about how we work today, and we're only now just starting to figure it out. Yeah, and what's interesting uh, for anyone who may not be familiar with your work, and I would encourage them <laughs> to definitely dive in, as I have over the last few years, Cal, is this is not just like you're making the argument just to make this absolutely clear. It's not like, well, Cal, that's great, but like I don't work that way. Like I have all these powers and all that. You're like, no, neurologically, like brain chemistry research wise, you've got stuff spinning in the background now because you just looked at your phone or you just tried to answer that email or, or whatever. Is, is this like at the neurological, physiological level, we're not created to do this? We absolutely aren't. I mean, you can you can study this at uh, the neuroscience level. You can also study this at the level of psychology. Mm. Uh, the research is unequivocal about this. We are not good at quickly switching our attention. It takes time. Yeah. And if you're going back and forth, it is not a good state to put yourself in. Yeah, you make the argument, I think, in your new book, and and it's a it's a good book. It's a big book, actually. <laughs> that uh, that requires. I'm, I'm, it's going to be a reread for me. Uh, but it was, it was that whole idea of like your, your system. Like if you look at most animals, you know, if they hear something in the forest, they kind of look around and it's a survival thing, but you had this metaphor of what was it, you know, a caveman at a computer or something like that, or, or do you want to explore that a little bit? Cause I thought that was really interesting. Well, I mean, I think more generally, a lot of the, uh, ills we have with the way we work today is from these mismatches between our, our fundamental nature Right. And the way that we have somewhat arbitrarily designed how our work actually happens. Uh, so I don't know if this is the, the exact analogy you're mm-hmm. referencing, but there, there is a, a caveman analogy that, that, that's quite relevant, which is if you go back to just, say, early human times and say, how would you naturally coordinate? Right. If there's three of you and you're on the savanna and you're you're hunting an, an antelope or something like that, right. the way we naturally coordinate with small groups focusing on one thing uh, is ad hoc and on demand. It's like, you go over there, I'll come over here, watch out for this. We just sort of let this thing unfold naturally. And the argument I make in the, in the new book, the one that just came out, is that the way we work today with the advent of low-friction tools, communication tools like emails, we've basically taken the way that three of us would have coordinated working on a single task like hunting an antelope, and we've scaled that up to whole organizations and dozens and dozens of different objectives. So our instincts tell us it's very natural just ad hoc on the man, figure things out on the fly. I'll shoot you an email. You shoot me an email. Maybe we're on Slack. We go even faster. Let's just figure everything out on the fly. And again, that works great when it's three people working on one thing. But when you have 30 people and 30 initiatives, it doesn't scale. And so we get completely overwhelmed by trying to maintain all of these different conflicting conversations. It's too much communication. We're constantly context shifting and our effectiveness drops and we get completely miserable. But it's not surprising that we got there. Because it was just our natural instinct, and this new technology allowed us to scale it up to levels that our brain never would have assumed was possible back when these networks were being, were being evolved. 
Back to deep work before we leave it, because that could be a whole episode in and of itself. But I think you make the argument in deep work that um, the average person has a capacity of about four hours a day max for like really concentrated effort. So if you're writing that talk, creating a business plan, writing a sermon, outlining a series, reorganizing the company, that cognitively demanding work, um, it's about four hours a day. And I would love for you to talk about just why that is a superpower. I think you actually call it a superpower and that that is, that is so scarce in, in the world today. What's the benefit uh, for leaders who are tempted to say, Cal, you don't understand my world. I got, you know, a thousand people I'm trying to serve. I got all these clients. I got all the, this big congregation. They're always wanting me. I got a big staff. Like what, because I've seen the benefit in my own life, but I want to hear it in in your words. What would you say the benefit or the superpower of deep work is? Well, uh, there's two big things you get from unbroken concentration. Uh, one, you can learn things faster. So if you need to learn something that's new or complicated, doing it with unbroken concentration is immensely more productive than trying to learn something with more distracted concentration. There's a lot of reasons why that's true, but we know that in many contexts today, the ability to learn new things, new systems, new ideas, new philosophies is crucial for success. Two, you produce higher quality with less total time invested when you're very concentrated versus scattered. Hmm. So if you have to, whatever, produce a book chapter or write a sermon, uh, you can take half as much time to do it if the time you spend on it is actually very concentrated. So, I mean, this is one of these paradoxes is that you assume, well, if I'm also checking email while I'm working on this hard thing, I'm more productive because I'm making progress on these issues in my inbox at the same time that I'm working on this. But what you don't factor in is this could take you twice as long, three times as long to get that same thing done. And even did the quality might be less than if you gave it unbroken concentration. So those two factors mean you got to, you got to be pretty careful about preserving unbroken concentration in your workday because it can make a big difference. So this could be a total rabbit trail. And if it is, we'll leave it. But it's got me thinking, like, you, you make the argument that deep work is so scarce. It's there. It's, it, therefore, it's so valuable. The people who can really bring value to an organization create a coherent thought these days. Do you think there is a correlation between the rise of shallow work and what we might call the rise of shallow thinking? Um, I've also followed Tristan Harris's work and so on, you know, when it comes to social media and the polarized, trivialized debate that we have in public. Do you think shallow thinking and shallow work go together? Hey, it's an it's an interesting question uh, because there's there's sort of two related forces there, mm-hmm. uh, but it's unclear how related, right? And, and I've, I've, I've dealt with both. So like in, in my 2016 book, Deep Work, and in my new book, A World Without Email, I'm looking at the world of work and the impact of technology. But in between those two books, uh, 2019, as you mentioned, I published Digital Minimalism, which looks at technologies in our personal life. So things like social media, things like our phone. And uh, they're similar in the sense that they both really fragment our attention and and, and bring us away from things that are uh, more valuable. But they're different in the sense that the motive forces behind them are quite varied. So if you look at what's happening in, in the public sphere with our conversation with polarization, it's be driven by things like social media. You have these companies that are actually – intentionally trying to get you to use these things as much as possible, to spend as much time as possible uh, on these platforms to make them as engaging as possible in a completely value agnostic, algorithmic driven way. Whereas in the world of work, the force that's driving us to more distraction, uh, the force that's driving us to to more fragmented attention is tools like email and Slack, which 
there's not someone behind these tools who's saying we want people to use email more or we're going to make money if we use email more. So actually the dynamics that got us into this world of constant communication, email use and work are much more interesting and emergent. I basically argue that it was accidental Mm -hmm. that we ended up in this place where we email all the time. Whereas in the world of our personal interaction with technology, like what we see today is actually the somewhat inevitable result of a intentional business plan. Right. Uh, how do we get pe- people looking at this thing as much as possible so we can get as much data and sell them as much ads? And it was, you know, Skynet invented the Terminator and things got out of control. So anyways, I'm glad you bring it up because uh, these two magisteria, the world of work and the world of technology outside of work, in some ways seem very similar. Yeah. But in some ways, when you look underneath the covers, there's really different, in interesting ways, different sort of forces going on. Well, and they converge for a lot of leaders on their phones. So, you know, I've, I've been at this a long time, 25 years in leadership. And like to go back to the 90s, which, which you know, you're younger than I am, but to go back to the 90s, here was the big debate in pastoral ministry. Home phone versus work phone. Like it was landlines, it was pre-cell phone. You had to be mega wealthy to have a cell phone in the 90s. That, and it was like, oh, please call me on my work phone, right? And of course, all those categories are out the window, and the challenge with most leaders, it's true in sales, it's true in ministry, it's true, it's like on this phone, and I write about it in my next book, like I've got at least 11 inboxes and it follows me all the time. And so I want you to speak to the leader who's trying to set up boundaries and and they're like, you know, my congregants, they're trying to reach me 24-7. I look at Facebook, there's five new messages. Then I go to Instagram, there's messages there. And they're like, hey, can you come and, you know, deal with this? And then I open my inbox. Like we have this fused world right now. And uh, salespeople have the same thing, right? And there are some corporate cultures where it's like my boss emails 24-7 and all weekend long. Any good... Um, guidance. And I know that's a, that could be a, a deep dive of its own for leaders who are living in that world where they're like, Cal, I can't catch a break from like morning till night. People are trying to reach me and get my attention and get me to act. And I, it's, it's, it's causing me to burn out. Well, this is the big problem of the time. I mean, yeah. to put some chronology to my thinking on this. So it's 2016 is when my book Deep Work came out. And that book was about, hey, concentration is more important than we realize. We've kind of accidentally built these work cultures where we're distracted all the time. I don't think we realize how negative that is. There's a big competitive advantage if you're one of the few to prioritize uh, focus. But part of the feedback to that book was, Cal, this culture of constant communication, I always have to be communicating, I always have to be servicing messages, I always have to be servicing Slack, et cetera. It's incredibly deeply entrenched and seemingly impossible to escape. And that's what led to the the, the new book, A World Without Email, where I asked the question of why? Like if it's so damaging, why do we work this way and and what can we do about it? And my my big point in the new book, which gets to your question, is that you have to look beneath like habits and and mm tips and etiquette and norms, because what really matters is what is the underlying workflow that your organization uses to actually organize work, to identify tasks, to assign tasks, to review tasks. And if you don't have an answer to that question, then you probably have just implicitly adopted a workflow based on ad hoc unstructured messaging. Totally. Now, I, I call that the hyperactive hive mind. I want to give it a name, just like I gave Deep Work a name in that book, Deep Work. And in the new book, I call the new workflow uh, the hyperactive hive mind. And the big observation is, is if the hyperactive hive mind is the primary way by which your organi- your organization actually coordinates, 
you cannot escape tons of messaging. You cannot escape the need. If you try to back away from messaging, it's a problem. No one individual can leave this. If you try to just throw etiquette at it, if you try to say, look, let's do email free Fridays, let's try to do no expectation of responses after five, these are going to fail because constant communication is the fundamental way that your organization actually grows. So my big argument is to solve this problem, you have to go deeper and say, let's replace the hyperactive hive mind with a different approach to doing our work that doesn't generate so many messages. Like you gotta, you gotta kill the root to get rid of the weed. And I think a lot of what we've been doing with a lot of inbox hacks and let's have better subject lines and let's have better etiquette is we're just kind of cutting out the leaves of this invasive weed and saying, why does this thing, uh, why is this thing not go away? We got to actually get down uh, and poison the roots. And to me, that is the fundamental question of how do we, how does information come into our organization? How do we organize it? How do we assign tasks? How do we review tasks? Uh, how does that all happen? And can we be doing it better? Can you define the hyperactive hive mind? I thought that was a really fascinating metaphor. Well, so that's my name for the the workflow that says the primary way that work unfolds in your organization is through ad hoc, unscheduled, unstructured messaging. Mm -hmm. So like the three cavemen that were in the savannah hunting the antelope, you sort of just figure things out on the fly with messaging, whether it's for email or Slack or whatever tool you use. I'm somewhat agnostic. But that is the fundamental way that most organizations organize themselves right now. Uh, so when I named my book A World Without Email, what I actually meant is a world without the hyperactive hive mind workflow is the primary way of organizing things. Mm -hmm. The whole idea, I call it whack-a-mole sometimes, where every you know you clear out your inbox and then Slack's blowing up and then you get five text messages. So it's that kind of like flitting from activity to activity to inbound to inbound that has become work for most people. And your argument is, because that is the typical workday for most knowledge workers, any productive work or deep work tends to get moved into the early morning hours, evenings, or weekends. Yeah. I mean, it's, a, it's an incredibly inefficient deployment of this, what I call attention capital. I mean, you have all this latent value in the, the brains and attention reserves of the individuals in your organization. And you're getting a very low return on this capital if you're doing this constant back and forth communication and people are trying to squeeze uh, more productive value production to the morning, to the afternoon. But the key thing is when you understand it's the underlying workflow, that's the problem. Then you realize that the common reaction, like people are very frustrated with this way of working, but this common reaction is, is you know, hey, if I stopped using email, I wouldn't be able to get any work done. That's true. So long as the underlying workflow that dictates your work demands that email is the primary way to organize it. And so to get past that reaction of just the way I work today requires that email all the time is that we actually have to ask, well, how do we actually work? And, mm. and there's where I think the huge opportunity is. Not just an opportunity. I mean, I think as the argument I make in the book, I think it is inevitable if we look at the history of technology and commerce intersecting at various points throughout uh, our economic history, that is inevitable that this early, like highly improvisational way that we work as digital knowledge workers today it's inevitable that we're going to move past it. it 10 years from now, we're not going to have an inbox with a thousand messages that so it's just our name at company.com and we're doing emails all day. We're going to look at that uh, as rudimentary as Henry Ford thought that the way that, you know, bids was making the original automobiles, automobiles right. was rudimentary, that we are going to get more sophisticated because there's a lot of value being left on the table because we're not making very good advantage of all these attention capital resources we have. So, I think it's inevitable. This is just the the story that repeats again and again in the history of technology and business that a new technology comes in, 
We deploy it in a sort of flexible, convenient, improvisational way for a few decades, and then we get more sophisticated. Hmm. And so it is inevitable that we're not going to keep working this way. It would be very ahistorical and arrogant to think this very first thing we tried in the first 20 years of having computer networks in the office is the best way to work. Of course, it'll change. So now the question is, are you going to be out ahead of that and reap those benefits, or are you going to be trailing behind and in some sense maybe pay a punishment for that? Yeah, I'd love to start getting into the reconstruction because you have a pretty long, nuanced argument in your book about different principles and processes. But um, you also quote Neil Postman a couple times. So finally, 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 I, I read, I've been meaning to since college, amusing ourselves to death. And last summer I read it. Great book, very philosophical and, you know, dated in the 1980s, but still very applicable today in his principles. And you quote Postman as saying, that, um, you know, this isn't just addictive. Technology is not just addictive. Email is not just addictive. It's ecological. What do, what do you mean by that? What's the distinction there? Yeah, I mean, the point he was making is there are certain technologies that when you introduce them to a culture, it changes the culture. Right. And, and we often don't get this. We, we think about like, oh, we had the culture we had before plus the new technology. But he said that's often not the way it works. It's like, look at the printing press. He's like, if you go back to pre-Gutenberg medieval Europe, and then you go forward to the, after the advent of the printing press. He says, you don't have medieval Europe plus there's printing presses. You have a whole different culture. Yeah. Uh, and in some sense, that's what I'm arguing happened with email. Like in the year 2000, we did not just have, oh, it's the 1990s office. Plus people also had email. We had a completely different notion of what it meant to work. I mean, we become used to this constant back and forth ad hoc communication, but we never did anything like that before. And it was the tool itself in some sense, just the arrival of the tool, the possibilities it opened that transformed the way we worked. And this is actually one of the kind of the big semi-controversial arguments in the book is that I'm arguing that no one really actually decided that this is a better way to work. There, there is no Harvard Business Review case study that is advocating for the hyperactive hive mind. Uh, you cannot find memos from CEOs of big companies saying, here's what we're missing. We need a lot more. We need to be sending a lot more messages. We need to be communicating a lot more. No one ever decided that was a good idea. It was a side effect of bringing email into the offices. And I even tell stories in the book. I go back and I, I document the rise of email. People brought this into the office strictly to replace existing technologies. It was like a better version of the voicemail for internal communication and a better version of the fax machine. Mm -hmm. In fact, one of the big things that, that enabled the rise of email, it's like a little known fact, is at the end of the 1980s, uh, a, a giant consortium of aerospace contractors, so these like really huge, you know, Northrop Grumman style uh, aerospace contractors, lobbied to force the big telecommunication companies to put in put in place this standard. It's very technical. Uh, I think it was called X.400, but that made it possible for email messages from one company's network to go to another company's network because they wanted to send files back and forth without having to use fax machines or couriers. And that kind of unlocked the whole thing because now lots of companies said, oh, great, fax machines are an annoying technology. This is much better. So email came into the office for prosaic reasons. It's, it's a more efficient fax machine. It's a more efficient voicemail. And in some of these case studies, a week later, the amount of communication in the office is off the charts. So yeah. it just the, the ecological impact of the tool being in the office and we just completely changed how we worked. No one planned for it. And we all kind of look back and are trying to say, oh, okay, I guess this is what work means now. Let's 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 have some etiquette about, you know, 
subject lines or how often we batch email checking. We were completely unaware for the ecological change that this invasive digital species unexpectedly created. Well, it's interesting you're right, because the design rules, email is just something that kind of happened. It's not like someone said, let's get everybody distracted, stressed out, anxious, and on 24-7. Nobody sat down. But Seth Godin's been a guest on this podcast. I know you're familiar with his work. He made the argument that when he was at Yahoo, and he resurrected this on his podcast recently, he was trying to, he made an argument he lost that was that email should not be free that it's almost like a postage stamp, that you should, you should um, you know, charge someone, I have to pay to read your email, and then you become much more selective about what emails you read. And he said, hey, that didn't work. It's probably not going to work in the future, but it's an interesting model. But you make the argument, too, that because all of this technology is free, it gets hyper-used, and you get that instant access. Any thoughts on that, on, on the design stage? Because I find that fascinating, because here we are reaping the benefit of all that or the curse of all that, and uh, I, I'm just curious about what you think the impact of free technology is in the midst of this. Yeah, weird things happen when you reduce friction down to just about zero. I mean, engineers know this. If, if, hmm. if you don't have any friction, things spiral out of control. Uh, the same thing seems to happen with email. So one of the stories I liked from the book is there was this study that these researchers from UC Irvine did where they went to a company, uh, said like an East Coast research firm. Uh, and they said, we're going to take a group of people, a group of employees of your company, and we're going to take them off email for a week. And we're not going to prep for it. We're not, we just, we just want to see what happens. Like <laughs> really, it was, a, it was an interesting experiment because usually uh, these business ethog- ethnographies have been observing how people use email. Right. They said, let's see what happens. What goes wrong if you take it away? It's like a classic experiment. Knock out this gene, see what happens to the fruit fly, right? Uh, so I was talking to the researcher about this experiment and she told me a story that wasn't in the paper. And there was a scientist who was uh, one of these uh, subjects in the, in the study, and he had been very annoyed because part of his work is he had to set up this laboratory every week for experiments they did at this company. And his boss would email him and interrupt him. All, I need this. What about this? What about this? Like all of these sort of like questions and tasks. And uh, it was really annoying because it's hard to set up the lab and, and it, it really distracted him and it made it take a lot longer. So – when this guy was off email, the scientist was off email for one week because he was part of this study. He told the lead researcher, oh, my boss stopped bothering me. You know, So when I was setting up the lab, my boss wasn't bothering me. But what made the story interesting is that the boss's office was two doors down. So literally the boss could just walk nine feet down a hallway and be like, hey, Bob, like, can you do whatever? So it, is, it was slightly more friction without email. It was still not a lot of friction. Right down the hallway, he was right there. He could go bother. But just that slight bit of friction when he took away email, all of those requests went away. Wow. Uh, And I think that is a great example of when you bring the friction down to nothing, I can basically just shoot off a message whenever, get get this thing off my mind. There's no social capital cost. I don't have to see your face. I don't have to interrupt you. I I could just do it. The, The system runs out of control, just like with physical systems. So I, I think Seth is absolutely right with that analysis is that when you went from making communication easier, like, Hey, a telephone is much easier than having to write you a letter. When you went from easier to free, I think they spiraled out of control. Hmm. You spend a a good chunk of, of time in the book talking about the industrial revolution and particularly the invention of the uh, assembly line, Henry Ford, sort of that whole idea. And then you, you link that to Trello as kind of a modern, 
knowledge workers equivalent. And I'd love for you to unpack that for people because there's some principles there moving to the solution side that I thought were really helpful. Yeah, well, so, so I go back to the assembly line a, a lot. Uh, and to be clear, it's not that I think there's anything specific about the industrial assembly line that we should do elsewhere. I mean, right. I, the assembly line is very specific to industrial manufacturing and was actually uh, quite detrimental to the workers. Hmm. What I care about is the the overall process engineering mindset. So what's important about the assembly line is that Henry Ford's big idea was the most convenient and flexible way to do something is not necessarily the most effective way to do it. And so you could think about the processes and actually say, let's experiment and re-engineer these processes to try to find ways that we get a better return on our capital. That's a huge leap in thinking, but it's what I think we need in the knowledge sector. So if you go back again to Henry Ford, they were building cars before the assembly line using what was called the craft method. And just like the hyperactive hive mind today in knowledge work, it was very convenient and obvious and flexible. They would just put the chassis up on sawhorses. You'd have a team working on a car. If you wanted to scale up your factory, you'd have more teams and more cars. So it's the exact same way that, that you know, bids created the first automobile, just scaled up in the most natural possible way. Well, okay, if one team can build one car, we'll have 15 teams building 15 cars. It was very natural, very flexible. Ford said, okay, I get that. But maybe there's more effective ways to build cars. And so he began this long series of experiments that ended up with the continuous motion assembly line. The whole point, though, is that all of these experiments and where he ended up with was much less convenient, much less flexible, much less obvious. It created a lot of exceptions. You know, if you didn't get it just right, the whole assembly line could stop. You had to hire more managers. You had to invest more money. I'm sure everyone hated it at the time. Like, why are we doing this? This is like, why are we, we have to spin? We're, we're building these these uh, these chains and these conveyor belts. It's so hard. Why would we do this? But it was 10 to 100x more productive at producing cars. And so I think the hyperactive high mind is the craft method. That's the obvious way to do it. Like, let's just, it's one tool. We all know it. It's very simple. Let's all gather around a proverbial sawhorses and work on the cars. It's, it's natural. Let's just rock and roll. But what's natural, what's obvious, what's flexible is not always the best way to do it. So when you see more sophisticated approaches of organizing knowledge work, like using something like Trello, where for each project we have a board that we all share, we can see all the tasks, we can see their statuses, communication happens on the board, not through emails, you're in one context at a time, you begin to get intimations of Henry Ford's assembly line. Hey, more overhead? Yes. Could bad things happen? Yes. Could something be missed? Yes. Could the whole assembly line come to a halt because you didn't quite calibrate it yet right? Yes. But we're producing Model T's 100x faster than we were before. And so to me, that's an, an incredibly important lesson to remember when looking at the way we work today in the knowledge space. So I want to give you a real life example, which would be my little company. So having been, I was a pastor for 20 years, a lead pastor in the last five years, done this communications company pretty much full time. And uh, I lived in the space of managing by email, which was frustrating, exhausting. So a couple of years ago, my team made a plan where we said we are no longer using email for internal communication. So the only time you're allowed to use email is if it's an outside client, somebody who isn't on our staff. So if my podcast producer, for example, says, hey, what about this thing? He, he can jump in on email and I'll, I'll loop in a couple staff, but it's kind of like not cool for team members to email each other. We did introduce Slack. Um, 
And, and Slack isn't quite as voluminous as email is. And, uh, and basically the expectation was you, you have to respond the same business day, not right away, same business day, just, just get back to somebody. And then we have weekly meetings where we just kind of park everything for the weekly meeting because most stuff, as you point out, Covey said, it's, it's important, but it's not urgent. Like you can really wait until Tuesday or Thursday. And then if it's conflicted or super difficult, um, or, or complicated, then we absolutely default to video and we do this. We just have a, a face-to-face communication. So, cause sometimes, you know, your 10 Slack messages later, you still haven't figured out. We also realized getting ready for this show, this podcast, this episode and reading your book that we're probably using. We also use Asana for task management. We're probably, it probably functions way more like Trello than we realize. And we could be creating boards and spreadsheets that are even more efficient than Slack. So, um, I'd love for you just kind of pick that little, we call it the workflow triage system. It's definitely reduced friction in our company. It means we can work on it, not in it uh, all the time, but I'm sure we can get better. So any thoughts on that or uh, what's good, what could be improved? Well, first of all, I, I love that general principle that email is good as a means of delivering information. Email is good as a means of delivering files but it is not great as the primary tool for which internal coordination happens. Yeah. So just as a, a general heuristic for thinking about rebuilding your company, I think you're, you're on the right track there. Uh, you do not want internal coordination to occur as just back and forth messages that right. all fall into the same sort of undifferentiated inbox. So I, I, think, I think that is great. Uh, the way I would just put some structure around the way you're thinking is that you take your company and say, if, if we're, reflective about it, there's certain processes we do. There's a process for uh, like podcast episode production. There's a process for marketing. There's a process for uh, whatever, consulting engagements or whatever it is. Like Whether you call that or not, there's these different processes that produce things that are useful to the company. Once you name them, you can then ask for each, how does the information flow work for this process and how do we want it to work? Is there a more uh, effective way to build this process. And by effective, I think typically in knowledge work, what you want to try to minimize is the number of context shifts required to actually produce valuable output out of this process. Slack to Asana would be a context shift. Yeah. Or if it was the way that like this podcast episode gets produced is there's a dozen back and forth emails. That's a dozen context shifts that you're inducing. There's a dozen times someone's going to have to stop what they're doing uh, and look at that email. So then you might prioritize alternative processes that maybe you have, you know, uh, the same overall time spent or even more time spent in like a weekly meeting, but it prevents back and forth emails uh, in between. Hmm. That would be more effective. And so like one of the case studies in the book, for example, I I talked about a media company that produces, they have like a a videos that go out every single day. And I talked about how they, they had a whole system put together that required essentially no back and forth communication. They had the spreadsheet that had the current status of each video and the various people involved would just check it on the spreadsheet. And when the status had changed to something that was relevant for them, there was pretty clear expectations like, okay, now it's in my, my uh, court to whatever, do the edits, move the video over here, then I'll change the status on the spreadsheet that, okay, now it's ready for being pushed out to the platforms and the people who do that take it. Uh, and so like they had taken a, a media production process and got rid of all the back and forth communication. Uh, it was all driven by the, they had a process that was like really clear steps and a really clear indicator of what step it was currently in. So, you know, once you have things processes, once you try to optimize processes for minimizing back and forth communication, it leads to a lot of innovations. 
that allows everything to get done without you individually having to feel like there's this constant unstructured deluge of messages that you're trying to keep up with. No, I, I found that I took that directly to my team. When I read that in the book, you gave me, were kind enough to give me an advanced copy of A World Without Email. And when I read that, because it was so simple, I think it was like a Google spreadsheet or something like that, or an Excel spreadsheet. And it, it was funny because I remember we did that process with a West Coast firm that does our marketing when we were doing a sales funnel. And it was literally a spreadsheet. And then it said, you know, edited or ready for publication or ready for filming. And you would just change the status inside the document. So it's not even an expensive software solution. But what it meant is it wasn't 17 emails back and forth. Like, have you edited that yet? Okay, when will you be done? Thursday, Thursday morning, Thursday afternoon, like that 17 chain reply all email that drives everybody crazy. Well, yeah, it, it, it's an easy change, but it's one that you wouldn't make unless you realize the game here is trying to minimize back and forth. Right. If what you're trying to do is just keep things convenient and flexible, you would say, well, why bother with that? Like, I could just email you, you know? <laughs> uh, so the hyperactive high bite is always easier and it's always more flexible. I, you know, I interviewed this, uh, this researcher in the book who was in the 80s and the 90s was at the forefront of how do we use new computer technology and computer networks to try to make things more productive. Uh, and everyone was trying to build these very complex IT systems, you know, uh, for all, if you have a podcast production that we're going to have like this custom built network application. She said all that research ended when email came along because everyone realized like, well, we could just get everything done with this one tool. You learn how to email people, you learn how to attach things to it, you learn how to do CCs, and and you can basically do any process. It just So it's always more convenient, it's always more flexible. Uh, so the key thing in your discussion there is shifting the goalposts from what's going to be easiest mm. to what is actually going to make us most effective. And by effective, we mean make the most use of this resource that we call attention capital. And those are two different things. You mentioned Trello. I used, I think, a beta version of Trello a few years ago, and uh, we moved to Asana. Um, any thoughts? Like, are you talking, a lot of people use Basecamp, et cetera. So are you saying like a project management system like that can reduce a lot of friction? And can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, I think all of these are good options. I, I mean, like Asana tends to be more popular in like software development type worlds because it has a lot of hooks into the specifics of agile project management philosophies. Trello has a lower learning curve. Basecamp has more features. Uh, but all of these can be much better than the hyperactive high buy because what you're what you start to do is a you structure what needs to be done. B you make it transparent so the whole team can see it. Uh, C you take information out of this big pile that's your inbox and you move it into the context where it's relevant. So like here is the site for this project. All of the information for this project is on this site. That alone is so much better than all the information needed for this project is spread out among messages over 20 inboxes. <laughs> like it's buried, by the way, with information about 20 other projects, you know. Uh, so all of that makes it much better. When you move information into these type of project management type tools also, uh, it's much easier to synchronize and coordinate because now we can all just get together and look at the Trello board or the Asada board or the uh, base cap site and we could just have a quick check-in like okay I can see who's working on what what do we need to change who needs what let's go and that is so much more efficient than having all those decisions made over 20 different back and forth ad hoc email conversations throughout the day so it seems like sometimes I have stock in Trello because <laughs> I, I push that particular example up I really think uh, as you said like a, a shared Google document could go a really far away I mean before the pandemic I mean just what you could do with a whiteboard that everyone sees 
could go a really long way. So yeah, it's not about having just the right tool. It's about optimizing the right thing. Yeah. So is that what's underneath the process principle or the protocol principle? Do you want to unpack some of those ideas in a world without email? Yeah. So, so there's these three principles uh, that have to do with, with how you get rid of the high fight. So the process principle is really hitting that overall point that you need to identify and optimize processes. Hmm. Right. This is what Ford did when he built the assembly line. You have to have that mindset. We have processes. We have to name them. We have to optimize them. You have to get to that mindset. Knowledge work has not done a lot of that, but it needs to. The protocol principle is a principle that could help you do that. And that talks in particular about if there's certain types of communication that happens commonly, putting in the effort up front to build an optimized protocol, even if it's more of a pain in the beginning, uh, can minimize the the sort of overall impact on people's brain. So, so it's often worth kind of building, like we talked about with the spreadsheet and you change the status. And then when I see that, I know it's my turn to pick it up. That's more of a pain up front than just say email me when you're ready. But when you put that effort in up front, you get back dividends over time because mm. it's it's every day less context shifting. And so every day you're getting a little bit more out of that attention capital. Uh, and then the final principle I, I had for optimizing processes is talking about specialization. And in general, I think that we get a better return on attention capital when people do less things, mm. but they do the things they do better. Uh, there's been a shift over the last 20 years towards making people more generalist. People do more things and they do all of them worse. And I do not think that's the right equilibrium if you want to get the biggest return. So I'm kind of calling for one of the things I see is a return, for example, of more support, more separation of, of frontline value production from back-end logistical support, people with less on their plate, but more accountability that the things they do, they do really well. I'm just convinced that that is a configuration in which you get the most value out of your resources and people are the happiest. You know, it's funny. I uh, did had a corporate coach last year who coached me and another mentor who really spoke to me and they've scaled companies and both would say specialization is a key to scale. Because when you're small operation, small church, small company, small business, you want a generalist. Oh, you can do this and you can do that. But they said, if you really want to make that pivot, uh, particularly in a high growth environment, you have to specialize. And the older I get, the more I realize, actually, I'm only really good at a couple things. I can interview people, I can write, and I can talk. And that's about it. I'm a communicator. So you would see the same thing, like specialization? Yeah. Well, and, and it's sometimes it's counterintuitive at first because it, yeah. specialization seems like it's more expensive. Right. Because you need more people. Right. But it could, in the end, be way more profitable. One of my favorite studies from the book was to study back from the, the late 1980s where this economist from Georgia Tech was studying these Fortune 500 companies that were firing their support staff. Because what happened as the 80s went into the 90s, we got personal computers and things like word processors. And uh, you didn't have to have support staff. Like a lot of the logistical tasks in corporate America became just easy enough with personal computers that it's possible for an executive to do that. Whereas mm. before it's like, I don't know how to type. I don't have a type or whatever. Right. Uh, so a lot of companies said, great, we could fire the assistants. We could fire the typing pool. We could fire the support staff and we'll save a lot of money because that's salary we don't have to pay. And so Sassone crunched the numbers. I basically said, yeah, that's true, but all of that work shifted onto the plate of the executives. So now the executives cannot do as much of the frontline value production as they could before. So what do you need? You need more executives. They get the same amount of work done. The problem is executives have higher salaries than the support staff. So he crunches all the numbers and said, okay, in the end, 
to produce the same stuff, your salary cost ended up 20% higher. Wow. So it felt like you were saving money by firing the support staff, but you weren't taking into account the cognitive cost of putting that work. We just treat people's brains like these infinite black boxes. Just, hey, whatever you throw at them, they'll do. And that's not there's – a, there's a psychological reality to it. So I think that effect – he called this the diminishment of intellectual specialization. I think it's a crucial factor. Mm. So specializing feels more expensive. You're like, but – you know, I could have you also do this and also do this. And I don't want to have to hire another person or I don't, you know, I was just doing an interview with a, a print reporter who talked about how uh, he got a lot of pushback from his peers because he started hiring someone to do his transcription of his interviews uh, because they're like, but you, you could do that and you would save the money. But he's like, oh yeah, gosh. but if I do that, that's, I can't write as many articles. And like in the end, I'm not going to be as, as successful. I think that plays a huge role. Letting people do less, but do it better. Specializing, Maybe it's more people, maybe it's more money at first, but your 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 growth and your value production and your success as an organization will almost certainly far outweigh what you had to outlay to support that specialization. So I want you to pick a paint a picture if you can of, you know, pick an office environment, a church environment, but just let's say it's a smaller business or a mid-sized organization. What does a day look like if you're not playing whack-a-mole with Slack or your inbox all day long? Like what, what might that look like in a, in a practical term for a knowledge worker? Uh, I mean, imagine a day in which maybe you look at your inbox once and if you forgot to do it, it wouldn't be a big deal. Hmm. Like that's, that's where I think a lot of people could get, uh, I'll give a specific example. There's a, a small, like a dozen person a tech company that I that I profiled in the book, and they had they had gone through all the standard hive mind issues. They were huge email people that Slack came along, and so then they became uh, huge Slack people. And it it became completely overwhelming to the point where it burnt out two of their engineers who quit. And the the co-founder says, "Enough is enough. Uh, I'm not going to work this way. I don't care if the company goes under. Hmm. We're not running this on email. We're not running on Slack. We're going to have to figure out how else to do it." And they shifted to a model where they had project management software. They had a morning check-in and an afternoon check-in. I mean, all the information, who's working on what, all the knowledge. All so the is that like a video and an in-person check-in or was it like inside the project management a, tool? Uh, it was a mix. So they, uh, it was not inside the project management tool. Some people would be in the office and the people who weren't would join via video. Right. So um, yeah, so if, if they had all been in the office, it would have been in the same room, but so it's like a stand-up meeting, a 15-minute stand-up meeting or so? They would do stand-ups like you see yeah. in software. And they do one in the morning, right? Okay, who's working on what? Who needs what? What happened to the thing you're going to do yesterday? Uh, good. Work. And then people just worked on those things until the afternoon. And then they checked in again. And all along, they were updating the product management system. And they were putting notes in there and updating the status and moving things along. They check it again in the afternoon. Uh, and that was it. And I actually had the CEO. I had him on the phone. I mean, this this was years ago when I first interviewed him. I said, "Open up your inbox. Like, go through it now." I'm just curious. Like, what's in your email inbox right now? And he was like, "Oh, okay. I haven't seen it yet today." He was going through it, and he was using it like you would have used a mailbox 20 years ago. It's like, yeah, okay. Here, our accountant is sending us, you know, uh, an invoice, and here is a bid from a contractor. Uh, you know, it was, it was yeah. like nothing urgent, no work, it was the stuff you would get in your mailbox without the inconvenience of going to your mailbox. And I just thought it was fantastic that they, they mainly just worked and they coordinated in a very, uh, condensed way. They had very structured environments to keep track of information. 
And the email inbox was like, oh, here's an announcement about we're going to have a, you know, boxer day as a vacation day this year. <laughs> like the type of stuff you want to use it for. Uh, and so, all right, so that's exa- another example. Like I could talk about a marketing firm in there where they had a Trello board for every project. And the workflow there was you were like, I got to work on this project now. You go to that Trello board. All the information is there. You see what needs to be done. You make progress. You update the board. Like, I'm done working on this product now. Great. Now let me go to a board for another project. You know, and like that's where all the interaction happened. So that's what we're talking about. A world in which you're not talking about your work all the time and your email inbox really seems like it used to be in the old days when you go to your mailbox at your office, you know, and be like, oh, let's see what letters I got today. Yeah, this is so timely for us. I mean, coincidentally, one of our goals, our wildly important goals for DX framework was to improve our systems. We've had double, triple digit growth the last five years in a row. Uh, Some of the people are new and it is duct tape and band-aids for our systems in that context. And so much of what you are describing is exactly what we're trying to tackle. Are you actually proposing a world without email where there is no Carrie at CarrieNewhoff.com or Cal at CalNewport.com? Or are, because I mean, we connected for this interview over email. I emailed you off your website, that kind of thing. Like, are you saying it's a world without email or it's just like where it's like the post office box from the mailbox from 20 years ago? Yeah, exactly. The, the actual title would be a world without the hyperactive high mind workflow. <laughs> <laughs> that, doesn't, that doesn't quite roll Publisher off. Publisher didn't go for I, that? I think, no. Yeah, I think email is a perfectly fine protocol for good uh, delivering information, delivering files. It's great. Yeah. I'm a computer scientist. I think it's a great protocol. The thing I, I I dislike is the idea that we can organize and coordinate and do all of our business, all of our collaboration with ad hoc, unsupervised back and forth messaging. So, yeah, mm-hmm. right away in the introduction of the book, I say, okay, here's what the hyperactive high mind workflow. This whole book is about evaluating this workflow. That's part one. Spoiler alert, it does not come off looking very good. <laughs> and then part two is how do you, what are the principles for moving beyond it? So uh, I love email as a tool. Uh, I just don't think it should be the foundation of how all collaboration occurs. And you make the argument it probably will lead to a shorter work week as well for a lot of people. Is that correct? Did I read that right? Yeah, there's there's a ton of overhead because of all this context switching. It's an incredibly inefficient way to actually use our cognitive resources to the point where I actually think this is a problem that knowledge workers, especially creative knowledge workers, are not worried enough about when it comes to AI we are so inefficient at working because of the hyperactive high mind workflow is that one of the things we should be worried about is that when AI comes in and reduces that burden. So one of the huge under the radar investments in workplace AI right now is basically to take the hyperactive high mind coordination off your plate. Hmm. So you could have like the dream is you will have your equivalent of a chief of staff like Leo McGarry in the West Wing, but it's an AI agent. Uh, and it talks to everyone else's AI agent. It just tells you like, hey, here's what you should work on. Here's the materials go, right? AI is going to that direction to allow human wow. brains to do the things that human brains do best, which seems great, except for we're so inefficient right now that if that happens too fast, it is going to drastically reduce the number of paid employees required to get the same amount of work done. And what's going to happen? What's going to happen when you come into a law firm and say, oh, when you're not billing emails at every six minutes, we could service the same number of clients with, you know, half of the first year associates. Well, if you're the partners, you're like, great, we're going to hire half as many first year associates because that's way more profits for us. Or our ad agency or needs half of the creative executives because they're, they get twice as much done. It could actually be a problem 
So it's not that AI can automate creative work, but we're so inefficient right now that if it makes it more efficient, there's going to be this gap period where we're going to lose the need for all of this cognitive capacity. I think eventually the economy will reconfigure and find uses for all this highly skilled creative capacity, but that could be that could be a really rocky transition. So in other words, I think we're so inefficient right now that we should be worried <laughs> about we should worry what will happen if we become if we rip off these inefficiencies there might be long bread lines of you know lawyers and ad executives and professors once wow. we once we get so so efficient any uh this is a little hobby of mine just barely studying ai but i'm fascinated by the dialogue do you have an approximate time frame of when you think technology like that and i know it's a million dollar question if you knew you'd know but like is this five years down the road ten years down the road any any thought on that <laughs> yeah so- no, it, it, it's a really good question. AI, it's it's interesting because it it it's not continuous. It, it tends right. to have these discontinuous jumps, right? Mm. And we've seen a few of those happen recently. Um, so we've seen the discontinuous jump in semantic understanding of spoken speech. You know, so a lot of this was driven by things like uh, uh, Siri and Alexa, where putting these devices in tens of millions of people's homes so they could have all of this data and practice trying to understand what people are saying, interpret speech and interpret the intention behind speech. I used, you know, I took a, a course on this when I was a grad student at MIT not that long ago, and the world is completely different today. I mean, th- mm. what happens today is magic, right? So we, we have these discontinuous jumps, so it's a little bit hard to predict, uh, but there is a ton of money. Like the reason why there's so much money in, for example, Alexa or Google Home is not just that oh, this is a big market. Everyone will have one of these in their home. It's because if we can get to the point where we really understand when you talk to me, not just the words you're saying, but what you want. Oh, you want me to turn up the volume. You want me to do whatever. Uh, that's really the killer app for workplace chief of staff style assisted AI. Like, oh, I understand what Carrie wants. I know now I can, I can talk to another AI. We can, very efficiently, we can very efficiently figure it out. There's a ton of money in it. Like, there's a lot of money in the Watson project at IBM right now that not everyone really knows about that is uh, going into monitoring workplace communication and try to figure out like what's going on here and how can I help. I, I profile a company called X.AI yeah. in, in the book that all the thing they were trying to do was just schedule meetings. You talk to this AI bot, it'll schedule a meeting with you. And they put like six or seven million dollars into this over like a period of a year. Uh, just to try to get it. So there's, there's a lot of money going into these things. And by the way, it was the CEO of that company who told me like, no, no, the goal is not to get that really good at understanding you and scheduling your meeting. The goal is to get my Exxon AI bot to talk to your AI Exxon bot and then neither of us have to think about the meetings at all. <laughs> they figure out that we need a meeting and they schedule it on our behalf, right? Um, so I think five to 10 year window. Wow. Five to 10 year window. Based on the jumps we've had recently, we're going to start to see Potentially a fundamental change, uh, fundamental change in the office. Well, and you are a computer scientist. That's your training. That's that's what you teach. Uh, do you? And I know. Do you have a dystopian or a utopian version of AI in the future? It is. It is a fascinating, widely debated subject. Yeah, I, I go back and forth. So I'm not sure. So I'm not yeah. confident in my answer. Like I, I think, for example, in the workplace, that the the intersection of the workplace and technology is something that I'm, I'm somewhat known for. Um, it depends on the speed. So, you know, I think if we we have these highly efficient chief of staffs faster than we know what to do with, there will be a period of disruption. I'm also optimistic, though, where I, where I think that the the economy will find ways to redeploy this cognitive capital. And long term, that could be more positive. Like there, there's a lot of areas of life 
in which the the scarcity of our own cognitive capital, the scarcity of our own time and attention is a real impediment. So if you could free up a lot of uh, like highly creative, highly trained cognitive capital that can that can be redeployed. I mean, even just thinking about uh, students at an underserved school to be able to have more cognitive capital that could come in and be like, we could uh, work with you uh, with like tutoring and one-on-one attention, or we could, you know, there, there's a there's a lot of potentially socially beneficial redeployments of this capital. I just don't know how bumpy that's going to be. Hmm. But the one thing I'm sure of is we're using way too many people now to produce stuff in the knowledge economy that we're going to need whatever the period is, 10 years from now, 50 years, 20 years from now, just because of the huge inefficiencies of the, of the hive mind. We saw the same thing, of course, in industrial right. uh, in industrial technological advancement. It took a lot of people to build stuff. We build stuff with a lot less people now because of technology. Uh, those people now, we've had to redeploy, and a lot of that got redeployed into our current knowledge economy actually over time. It's very disruptive when it happened. We're going to have the same thing happen with knowledge work. I mean, we don't need as many people as we have right now to match our current level of production, but we're just so inefficient. That's where we are. Well, and often expansion, staff expansion, hiring can be, I remember I was on a consulting thing a couple of years ago and they're like, we need more staff. We need more staff. As an outsider looking in, I'm like, no, no, <laughs> you've got plenty. Cal, uh, got if, you have, staff, yeah. Yeah, if you have a couple more uh, minutes, just a couple of quicker questions for you. Yeah. Uh, I run a 100% digital company. So like, and, and I think the post-pandemic world is going to be hybrid companies, digital companies, virtual organizations, as well as some people with, uh, you know, totally in-person staff. But, you know, there's a massive acceleration going on in that field right now as we speak. Any, are there any particular rules that you would have in mind for virtual or hybrid companies where you don't have everybody in the office? Well, so I went deep on this topic after I'd finished writing this book, I, I did this big piece for the New Yorker uh, earlier in the in the COVID pandemic to to look at remote work, the history of remote work, what's going to happen as we shift more companies to more remote work. And one of the big conclusions I came away is that when you move completely remote, some of the the issues of the hyperactive high mind get amplified. Mm. So the the urgency and the benefits of having more structured work both become more important the more remote that you actually shift. Oh, wow. You know, this is why, for example, the, the the one industry in the knowledge sector in general that really doesn't have much trouble being completely remote. In fact, even before the pandemic, there was giant companies that had huge remote teams with software development. Hmm. And why is software development easily able to make that jump to remote is they have very structured workflows. They use these agile project management methodologies. Their work is already very structured. So if you shift remote, it could handle that very well. The companies that are having the most trouble are those that were way ad hoc, just like let's rock and roll, let's fly, I'll grab you in the office, let's send emails, and we kind of just like make things work. That just flies off the rails when everything becomes completely remote and everything gets abstracted to just these these uh, toneless emails that get sent back and forth. And so uh, that's been my big message is that the way to adjust to the remote economy is – to get more processes in place. You gotta structure your work, you gotta get your systems in place. Remote work can be very, very effective if you have these structures and processes that you're evolving as a team over time, trying to optimize things like context shifts, having transparency and task assignment, trying to specialize, all of these things. So I think a world without email became a lot more relevant. 
after we had this sudden acceleration of what was probably an inevitable move towards more remote work. But as we accelerate that, the type of principles I talk about in that book, I think, are more relevant than they've ever been. We'll link to that uh, piece for the New Yorker in the show notes, too, for, for leaders. And, and what, I, what I found, too, is that sometimes, and I, I just love your take on this, but running a digital company and running remote work, that sometimes that inefficiency is a bid for attention and human connection. In other words, I just want to talk to someone because I've been stuck in my office all day home alone. And what we've discovered is it's much better to jump on a Zoom call and actually just have a water cooler moment or build in some extra time into our weekly or maybe that daily stand-up that you talk about, which I'm toying with. Like, in other words, make the connection about connection, but the work about work. Thoughts on that? I think that's right. Yeah, I think it's I think it's better to be clear about what you're trying to do uh, as opposed to sort of informally or implicitly try to achieve goals. Uh, another example of this that, that became kind of clear during the pandemic is that uh, there was inequities in people's time availability because of the disruption of, let's say, if you had kids right. and like their school was closed out or this or that. A lot of companies, instead of directly addressing this, which you would do if you had transparency, a task mm-hmm. assignment, you could see who was working on what, or if you, you were specializing, like this is a reality, we have to adjust for it. Instead, they're like, well, everything is so informal and ad hoc with the, the hyperactive hive mind. Uh, we'll just pretend like it's okay. And the people who have much less time will just use the obfuscation of the hive mind to kind of just performatively seem like they're more busy and and send a lot of emails but not really be doing as much work. And uh, that kind of ad hoc improvisational response to this issue is not best, right? I think it's always better just to have clarity. Here's who's doing work and why. Here's what you do. Okay, we have to adjust this because of X. Uh, if we if we're lonely, then let's find the best possible way for us to connect. If if uh, you can't do as much work right now, instead of you pretending like you can, and uh, why don't we reduce what's on your plate or whatever it is? I think clarity is better. And when you apply these principles to have smarter workflows, smarter processes, I think you're absolutely right. You can address these problems straight on. Yeah, I know you got a whole section of the book on this, but just uh, to avoid <laughs> answering this in the comments. A lot of people listening going, Cal, that's awesome, you know, but you're kind of a professor. You work for yourself. You're at the top of the food chain. Carrie, you've always been the senior leader. I'm not. Like my boss, he's on 24-7. We're in a bad culture. I'm expected to be there. What What would you say to those who are sort of trapped in the middle who are like, I'm 100% on board, but I don't make the decisions? Right, because there's different constituencies here. And, and I would add that actually professors are, are not as autonomous as you would think. We have... Uh, <laughs> I wrote an article that got me in trouble a little bit at my university for the Chronicle of Higher Education that was called, Is Email Making Professors Stupid? Uh, and let's just say that that led to a lunch with the deed. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, but it's a good point. There's different constituencies for this message. And I try to be clear about that in the book. You have, let's think, like executives that you control a team or a whole company and you you have autonomy. You have entrepreneurs, like it's your own thing. It's a, a You're a, a solopreneur. It's a very small company that you control. And then you have employees. Right. Uh, if you're an employee and you don't really have control over your workplace culture and you're, you're trying to slip copies of this book into you know your boss's backpack, but that's only going to do so much, you might not be able to deploy everything, but there's a lot you can still deploy. And what I recommend to people is, well, look at your personal processes. Like here's all the different things I deal with at work. And let your inbox be the guide. It's your answering emails be like, what process is this email associated with? What process is this email associated with? And you focus on the parts of that process you can control and do the same thing. Let's structure them. Let's try to optimize to reduce the amount of back and forth emails I have to send. 
let's specialize where I can. Like, like maybe I could adjust my portfolio. I mean, I talk about this in the book. You could try to make a trade to gain more autonomy over how you work. Typically, if you're an employee, you're going to have to offer up accountability mm. in exchange. So I get into that that potential exchange. Like I'm going to do less. I'm going to specialize, but you're going to hold me more accountable, which could be scary, right? But there's things yeah. you can do. Uh, but I, but by identifying and optimizing your personal processes, you'd be surprised by how much impact you could have. So yes, you can't control the emails that come in, but if those emails come in, you put them into a, a process that's going to reduce the amount of back and forth you need to do with this person. Even if they don't know that you have this process, even if you're not telling them about it, even if you're not having sort of annoying autoresponders, even if it's just, uh, it seems like he's suggesting some more stuff in here. You could significantly control and reduce what comes into your inbox by just having it apply the same principles the best you can. So really, it could be as simple as like someone sends you an email is like, hey, uh, thoughts on the client. And you're like, OK, here's the right process. I'm just going to kind of explain this in my email, uh, not in an overtop way, but like, yeah, this is great. We should talk about it. Here's what we're going to do. By noon on Friday, I will have my thoughts in a, a, a document in the shared Dropbox we have. You can then review it. Let's have a meeting on the books for Monday morning. We'll, we'll then make our, our final decision about what should go into the draft. Here are four times that are available. You just email back which one you want to do and we'll rock and roll. Like you're essentially bringing them into your process without saying, let me preach to you about a world without email. <laughs> we need to have processes. It used to be too much emails. And okay, like great. That's less emails I have to send. So it's a great question. Uh, there is a lot you can do is my answer. There's a lot you can do by just optimizing the processes that you control even if the people around you are sort of frustratedly not on board. This almost moves more into digital minimalism territory. And again, I, I highly recommend your books. Um, but, you know, you have a lot of people listening right now. Everybody's online more post-pandemic. Like churches got catapulted a decade and businesses did. I know my favorite restaurants are all hyper online now. And so we're all a little more attached to our devices. But you quite famously, like you have real minimalist footprints on social media, but you've also emerged as so, and, and, and there's people listening who are trying to build online companies, right? It's like, I'm going to be an influencer online. I'm going to be whatever, but here you are, you've written numerous best-selling books. You um, have a national profile, have a voice that people seek out and you've done it kind of without much of a social media digital imprint. Uh, like you got a website and that kind of thing. Can you, can you talk about that dynamic? Yeah. I mean, I, I've never had a social media account. Yeah. I thought that was true. So they're all fake. If, if, if you think you're following Cal, you're oh, not. fake ones. Yeah. Oh yeah. There's weird. Yeah. And that's a whole other thing. There's, there's multiple Cal Newport Twitter accounts with my picture. Uh, I have no idea who. Cause I wondered if that was you and I'm like, I don't yeah. think that's Cal. Like, no. Uh, yeah. I mean, a, a lot of them are, are sort of suspiciously uh, Russian bodish. <laughs> Asking for money. Right. <laughs> yeah. A little bit without what you'd expect. Uh, yeah, so I've never had a social media account. Wow. Uh, I do have a, a blog slash email newsletter, which I've had forever and I love. You know, I have this great audience. It's not huge like if I was on Instagram or something like this, but it's people who come to calnewport.com, which is on a server in Michigan. Uh, you know, I control it uh, and I email people. And I have a podcast. I love podcasts because they're uh, – I feel like it's very distributed. I control it. There's not a small number of companies that are in charge of it. It's just on a – you know, podcast, you just put it on a server – and anyone can access it through any service they want to access it, right? But I've never had a social media footprint. I mean, my strategy has been, uh, this was the title of a book I wrote in 2012, was just trying to be so good you can't be ignored. Right. You know, I just, I want to produce good stuff. And I think hard about it. I write about it. And I, I have a couple ways of reaching people about it that I like. 
You know, I mean, I like my blog and email newsletter list because I get my arms around it. Like some of the people who comment on my blog have been doing so for a decade. You know, I know them. It's interesting. <laughs> it's like my friends, you know, um, and in the long run that worked, you know? And so like if, if I've been putting a lot of energy into Twitter, I could probably get a lot of followers um, and maybe it would have helped like the last book I wrote, maybe have more sales right up front or something like this. But the the impact on my cognitive resources is such that is, instead of publishing my seventh book right now, maybe I'd just be on my fifth. Yeah. Or, you know, something people don't understand about books is like, oh, if you have a really big Twitter account, then maybe you could add an extra 5,000 sales to your first week, which, you know, could matter with the, the, the bestseller the list. But yeah. it's nothing if you're trying to sell a million copies of your book. Uh, that's a drop in the bucket. And how do you sell a million copies of the book? It's the producing just the right book for the right time. It's just the, the luck slash craft. Uh, so yeah, I'm a big believer. The whole point of that book, digital minimalism, by the way, is not that like social media is bad or other technologies are good. It's just that people should be way more intentional. Why am I using this technology? Is there a really good reason? And if so, what rules should I place around it so that I could get that benefit while avoiding all of the other harm. So it's like if you need to use social media because like whatever, your ministry uses Facebook groups as a way to organize uh, X, Y, Z, great. But if that's why you need it, then it shouldn't be on your phone. You shouldn't be looking at your news feed. It should be on your computer. You should log on through your desktop once a week to update that group. You know, once you know why you're using technology, you can optimize how you use it. And the thesis of that book is once you're trying to optimize how you use technology for this purpose, not that, you get this huge shift in the benefit to cost ratio that goes decidedly in your advantage. Well, and I don't know whether this was intentional or maybe it's just a misreading, but having read um, most of your books, including Be So Good You Can't Ignore It, be, yeah, whatever that, whatever that title is, uh, Steve yeah. Martin quote, I noticed a shift in a world without email where it felt almost as philosophical as practical, that there was a real, there was a real narrative that was developing. Like I put that on my list of books to reread when I get the physical copy in my hand. And I wonder if that is a cumulative benefit of years of deep work. Uh, yeah, I think for sure. I've been, I've, been, I've been thinking hard about technology and culture for yeah. many years, trying to produce the best possible writing on it. Uh, also, I would say there was a shift right around deep work where I began to find conciliates with my academic work and my writing. Mm. So if you go up to So Good They Can't Ignore You, the books I wrote before them, it was I had my academic career where I was a computer scientist, and then I also wrote books. And they were almost like two separate things. But with deep work, there began to be this conciliates, right, where I began to focus more on technology and its impact on our culture. And, and it made a lot of sense that as a computer scientist that I might also be writing for a public-facing audience about the impact of these these technologies on our culture. That 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 started to that started to make sense, especially after I got tenure, which typically opens you up for uh, bigger thinking. So then I began thinking about this much more through an academic frame. And so I really ramped up the intensity of thought, the thought leaders I was around, the back and forth. I began doing more what I would say like high-end writing for like the New York Times, the New Yorker and Wired, like writing for places that were really demanding uh, the quality of your ideas. And that melding between my academic and writing persona, and just years and years of thinking um, is, I think you're absolutely right. I'm glad you noticed that, is mm -hmm. I, I feel as if I'm, I'm increasing the sophistication. I'm, I'm really trying to lay out uh, intellectual or philosophical frameworks for understanding technology and culture because I think it's so much turmoil that's going on right now. There's a lot of new, exciting philosophy actually being forged, and I wanted to be a part of that. 
It's very encouraging. What would you say from your approach that you've outlined in your book? What's the, like, just Cal as the human being, you know, you go home, what is the benefit of having that kind of cognitive clarity and the lack of continual distraction and buzzing phones? Like, what would you say at this point, this is the thing I'm getting the most joy of, uh, out of? Right. Well, I mean, my overall philosophy, I sometimes call the deep life. And I talk a lot of, I talk about it a lot of my podcasts, which was unexpected, yeah. right? I mean, I, I had launched the podcast uh, early in the pandemic, but the idea was it's, I'm going to answer questions for my readers. And I thought it would be almost entirely pragmatic, right? Like, okay, I, like the type of stuff we were talking about. Like, yeah. I, uh, you know, I want to, I want to updo my, my process. I want to reduce email. I want to get more deep work, et cetera. And I just found myself pretty quickly kind of pulled by my listeners and by my own interests laid out these philosophies for uh, how to live and articulating my underlying philosophy uh, because I think there was a real hunger for this as people went through resets during the pandemic about what's important, what's not, how do I want to live my life? I think a lot of people are going through that. And so I articulated my underlying philosophy as what I call the deep life, which is you identify the different areas of your life that are important to you. Um, like I, I, I do these alliterative buckets when I talk about my own, like craft, community, contemplation, which captures theological, philosophical, ethical concerns, uh, constitution, like your health, you know, your fitness. Here's the things to report to the areas. And then for each, what you're trying to do is basically get that signal to noise ratio up. I want to put my time on things that are really important and valuable and meaningful in each of these buckets and minimize the time I spend on everything else. Like I only have so much time and attention, so I want to make sure that in each of the buckets that are important to me, it's going the big wins. And I just think that is a foundation for a, a resilient, meaningful, satisfied life. And there's just not a ton of room for doom scrolling on Twitter <laughs> or like being up to your, your neck in Slack 12 hours a day. Like suddenly that type of behavior says, I don't see what bucket that shows up as like one of the most valuable ways for me applied by time. So this, this, this notion of depth, I've really extrapolated it out of just the world of work and being like, this is my philosophy for sort of all areas of life. Focus on what matters. Don't waste too much time on what doesn't. Man, you have been so generous with your time. It feels like uh, <laughs> that's a, that's a good springboard into a whole other conversation for perhaps another time. But yeah, listening to your podcast, I'm going to go back and, and backlist. And I, I got a few episodes because I discovered it researching for today. But it feels like there's almost another book there, you know, The Deep Life. And, and we didn't even get into making or craft something that I'm, you know, was challenged in, in your previous reading. So you, you're not on social, but they can find you at uh, where online. And then uh, we'll talk about the book. And thank you, Cal. Yeah, well, uh, so Cal Newport dot com mm -hmm. is where you can learn about the books and that's where my my weekly newsletter is housed and then the podcast is called deep questions so you know you can get that wherever you find podcast and that's about it <laughs> when it comes <laughs> to trying to find me online uh cal you've been so generous and this has been so helpful thank you so much well thank you it was my pleasure well, I so appreciate the philosophical approach that Cal is taking and the hyper-practical. And honestly, if you uh, want more of the hyper-practical, definitely get his book, A World Without Email. It is both deep and practical. But his podcast, The Deep Life, 
really, really practical. He answers questions. I'm a subscriber. I'm a listener. And hey, if you haven't yet subscribed to this show, I would love for you to do that. And if you found this helpful, share it with some friends on social. Tag me. I'm Carrie Newhoff on Instagram. We try to uh, repost a lot of you who are sharing the podcast. We really appreciate what you're doing. We're approaching 16 million downloads on this show. It's incredible. Thank you so much. We never take that for granted. And we try to bring you really, really helpful content every week. Speaking of which, we have show notes for this. So you can go to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 403, and you'll find transcripts, quotables, uh, some insights, and a whole lot more links to everything we covered. And uh, we have some guests coming up that I'm very excited about. So Adam Grant, John Maxwell, uh, Rick Warren, Annie F. Downs, Amy Edmondson, Simon Sinek, and many more coming up on the show. And next time I sit down with Chris Heeslip. So Chris is somebody I've gotten to know, and he's launched 14 companies that didn't work before he launched one that did, which grew from a million to a hundred million dollars in revenue in four years. And so here's an excerpt of the next episode. I just think that uh, the greatest companies that are going to exist have not yet been started. Mm. And I think the greatest churches that are going to exist 10 years from now haven't even been started. And so to me, there's ways of doing ministry and ways of creating businesses that we haven't even thought of today. And so nat- you know, uh, naturally, we should be optimistic about the future because it's there's so much today that exists that didn't have that we didn't have 20 30 years ago really looking forward to that conversation with Chris Heeslip and now it's time for what I'm thinking about and I'm going to talk to you about a couple of productivity hacks there'll be a lot more this fall when my new book comes out and obviously you should explore people like Cal Newport who have a lot of good things to say in this area but I want to share a few things with you that really help me these are practical you can implement them right away. And what I'm thinking about brought to you by Glue Connect. Go to glueconnect.church forward slash carry. That's G-L-O-O, connect.church forward slash C-A-R-E-Y to grow your digital outreach campaigns and get free access to my four-part course, Click to Connect, which is only available through Glue Connect. And by Belay, text carry to 31996 to get your free download of Belay's delegation worksheet today. That will help you save some time. And speaking of saving time, here's some productivity hacks. And listen, this is, and, and my book will cover this, Cal's book covers this, and so do many others. But this is more than just, oh, you know what? I'm going to turn off notifications on my phone and everything's going to be great. No. But if you have notifications on your phone, you have a problem. So I want to share four with you today that have really helped. Uh, my book, actually, that comes out this fall, we'll talk about this a lot, but I want you to start thinking about your peak energy window. Cal calls it time blocking. Uh, but the the theory is that we have 24 equal hours in a day, but not every hour is created equal or produces equally. So if you're like most people, you have about a three to five hour window a day where your energy is at its highest. Cal would say you have a four hour deep work window. That's about the maximum that you can get on most days, even in ideal conditions. And you have other windows where you feel sluggish or tired. So here's a quick hack you can start using now. Don't squander your best hours. Often you spend them indiscriminately, right? I used to do breakfast meetings. I'm a morning person. Not the best use of my time. Why? Because by the time I get to the office, I'm kind of distracted and tired and I've had a two-hour meeting or whatever. And then, you know, if I get to do some writing or, or, you know, I'm working on a message or talk or a book, 
my best energy is burned up. So for me, my peak hours are 5 to 10 a.m. I do all the writing I can in those windows. Uh, and then after, I can get to my other work. I can do my email. I can have a meeting. I can have lunch or whatever. So I think that is the secret to high-impact leadership. It's doing what you're best at when you're at your best. My book will be all about that this fall with a lot of details about that. You can also use distractions as a reward. That's a second hack. So yeah, we live in a very distracted era, and I've never been diagnosed with ADD, but I'm pretty sure I have it. So, you know, it's easy to jump on Instagram or stop by a coworker's desk to chat or raid the fridge or check out a YouTube video on how to fix your garage door opener. So our lives are full of distractions. And here's, here's a tip. Use distraction as a reward. So if you're working on a message or you're working on a talk or you're working on some deep work, uh, then what you say to yourself is, I can't check Instagram now. I'm going to set a timer. I'm going to set a window. I'm going to watch a clock. But at you know 10 o'clock, I can check Instagram. And if you do that, then that's awesome. Or maybe it's like, no, I have to finish this project. And then I'm able to go and get a snack. Use distractions as a reward because what happens, you're not on an assembly line, right? So it's pretty easy to go, well, I'm a little bit bored. So boom, you know, the hive mind as Cal talks about. So use distractions as a reward. Next hack. I already hinted at this, turn off all notifications on your devices. So this is really, really important. I mean, in my company, we use Dropbox and Slack and, uh, you know, email only for external clients, but there's so many things buzzing all the time. I've shut off all the notifications on my devices and that allows me to focus. It's not going to solve all your problems, but, you know, as I've coached leaders and I'm like, well, are you getting Slack notifications? Yes. You know, as Cal says, the average worker, knowledge worker, checks his or her email every six minutes. You are not going to get anything done if that is the level of your distraction. If you just shut off those notifications, I promise you the world is not going to burn down for the two hours you're focused on your deep work. And if it is, somebody will knock on your door and rescue you. Okay, that's how it's going to work. A focused leader is a productive leader. Distracted leaders, well, they aren't. Okay, and then finally... Take a break to find a breakthrough. So the kind of work that a lot of us who listen to the show do is mental work, right? You're trying to, if you're Rob Palinka, right? We had him on the show. He's trying to coach a team to championship performance. And that is, yeah, there's some technical stuff there, but that's a lot of mental stuff. You're trying to write a book. I mean, we have so many authors on this show, right? You're like, oh, what is that next idea? Or we have a lot of preachers who listen. It's like, I got to figure out the angle for the series. I'm not sure what this text means. Or you're working on some strategy and you're trying to figure out how to take your company to the next level. And you're like, I don't know what we're doing right now isn't working, but I don't know what's working. And so what I found is that when you're trying to do that kind of deep thinking, that sometimes sitting at your desk is exactly what you should do, but often it's not. It was Nietzsche who said there is no thinking without walking. Take a walk, uh, go into nature. I sometimes jump on my bike. And there's good research that shows our brains actually connect the dots in the background when our minds are relaxed. That's one of the ideas. You have good ideas in the shower, right? Or when you're not trying to do work, you're like, oh, that's what it is. And then you write it down. So often I find if I'm trying to get to that level of deep work, yes, sit there in concentration, maybe sit at your desk in a chair. But it's okay once in a while to give yourself permission and say, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rake some leaves or I'm going to um, pull weeds in the garden, or I'm going to mow the lawn, or I'm going to go for a walk, or I'm going to go for a run. And then often when you're not trying to think of it, boom, all of a sudden the idea hits you. Or when you come back to your desk, you kind of have a fresh 
motivation. And if you do that semi-regularly, uh, you will begin to discover breakthroughs. And I always keep notes uh, in Evernote, but you can use notes, you can use whatever you want to do, but just have an easy capture system. Sometimes if I'm out running, I just record a voice memo. So those are productivity hacks. Guard your peak energy window, use distractions as a reward, turn off all the notifications on all your devices and take a break to find a breakthrough. Hope that helps you. I have uh, nuggets like this over at my website, kirinewhoff.com. I also have an email newsletter we send out almost every day to about 80,000 leaders. And if you're interested in receiving little leadership nuggets like this and making sure you don't miss anything, head on over to kerryneuhoff.com forward slash email. You can sign up there. I'm really grateful for you. Can't wait to be back with Chris Heaslip, Adam Grant, and other leaders. Uh, thanks so much for listening. And I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Kerry Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.